0: If you want to create a global brand, you have to have a global positioning and and the touch point should be the same. So what we start doing, uh, we start concentrating at the center all the activities and really shifting from a product which aimed to be global, but it was locally managed, to a really globally managed brand, centrally managed in, in Switzerland, where the headquarters are still today.
1: and examples from some of my work over the last few years coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, If you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and we're learning from Massimiliano Pogliani, an Italian entrepreneur who has some fantastic experience in brand development. So in his career he has helped make Nespresso a global brand. And we talk about how that came about. He's also uh, taken from Nokia a product called Virtu, which was then a luxury Nokia brand, Nokia phone brand, and continued its development and sold it on to private equity. And then he went to work as the chief executive of Illy, the first chief executive officer of Illy Coffee in Italy that wasn't a member of the family. So we talk there about cultural transformation. And one of the things that I learned from him today is that we all have beliefs. And as he, I guess, gets longer in his career, he's realized that often those beliefs can be self-limiting. And so you have to have continuous curiosity. You have to make learning a continuous exercise. You have to find and then challenge the beliefs because otherwise those beliefs will hold you back. So that was a fantastic learning from him today. But also we talk about, you know, how did he create that Nespresso brand? How did would they get to the point where 50% of their sales were coming through referrals? How did they build a community that was referring and was acting as ambassadors and salespeople for their product and their brand? And we touch a little bit on the, is it global? Is it local? And when do you need to do one versus another? So a fantastic conversation about building and running three amazing businesses and brands. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.
0: Hello, I'm Massimiliano Pogliani. Thank you, Don, for inviting me to this podcast. I am today a strategic partner and investor for PX3, which is a PE firm
1: based in London. And do does PX3 have a particular investment thesis? Is it tech? Is it luxury?
0: Well. PX3 is a pan-European private equity firm, which is based in London, which was founded by three partners who have previously worked together for over 20 years in the private equity space. So PX3 stands for Purpose, Passion and Performance. So we invest in B2B, B2C companies which operate within specific segments of the business services, consumers, leisure, and industrial sector, and they have strong business fundamentals. What we do, we support entrepreneurs and the management team in the development of business through transformative growth and also, of course, operational improvement.
1: Very good. And in the past, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on was to pick your brains on creating a luxury brand from something which was previously a commodity. And I suppose it's funny because I was talking to somebody about the first product that you were involved with the other day and they looked at me like I was mental, right? So like the idea that a Nokia phone could be a luxury item. But, you know, Apple have created a watch, which is a luxury watch. You know, you can buy a gold strap and, for your Apple Watch or a Gucci strap for your Apple Watch. But, you know, and I was watching the documentary on Netflix, General Magic which was sort of the, you know, spun out of Apple, They cr- the team tried to create a smartphone before the technology and the network existed and, and failed. But it's an absolutely fantastic documentary. But I wanted to get on and just, because you've done it twice, to my knowledge, you might've done it more times than that, but certainly in the conversations that we've had, you know, we've talked a couple of times about certainly doing it in in phones and coffee. What is it that you did before being able to create a luxury brand out of a mobile phone? What What was your... What had you done before that that gave you the insights to make that possible? Well,
0: that's that's a good question. I think I could answer with one thing. I believe the the key difference between working with a with a brand and working with a premium luxury brand is that in premium and luxury management has to be part of the brand, meaning that you don't don't have to do your work, your job, and but you really need to live and feel the brand and what you are selling is part of what you like to do. So what you do and what you sell is part also your daily life. So developing an appreciation for good things across my life, where at the beginning was aspirational because I could not afford these things, but it was one of the things pushing me forward to to make career and success. And so one day I will be able to afford this luxury item. But at the same time, by looking, observing, you start kind of absorbing this passion and also this feeling for what is premium and what you think is classy, is good, is is part of something which is in, in the person. So that's why I'm saying if you are not into it, if you don't like these kind of things, which is fine, it's not the, you are not a better or, or worse if you don't like a luxury it is is very very difficult for to work for a luxury premium brand because it's like uh, you know you have pretend to do something that you don't understand so you really need to live it and feel it and then try to which is the most difficult thing to do is try to put the customer at the center of what you do you know thinking well if I'm a customer, I like this kind of thing, what I would like this company to do, not only in terms of product, which is just one key element uh, when you talk about premium and luxury positioning, but then oh, there are uh, at least are the three pillars that you have to really uh, manage and and, and take, take care if you really want to develop a, a premium brand. So Of course, it starts from the product because you need to have... Fantastic, good, exceptional product. So you mentioned Apple. Of course, Apple is a fantastic phone, but great, but this is not the only reason why an iPhone is successful. So this is the first necessary but not sufficient condition. Then you have to move to the second part, which is creating around this product a brand image that is emotionally engaging with the consumers. Why am saying this? Because with product, Superiority, you create customer satisfaction, but you don't necessarily create customer loyalty. So you can be very satisfied of your watch, of your bag, of your shoes, of your wife, but it doesn't mean that you don't want to try something else. So why you don't want to change? Well, it's like, it's very much about the love story. Why you don't change your watch, your shoes, brand or your wife every single day? It's not because you cannot go out and find a more beautiful woman or a more beautiful man, etc., etc. Why? So it's not because of the product satisfaction only. Of course, you love your life, you like it. But it's because of the emotional engagement that you create with the story you are building with your wife, with the product, with the brand. So brands that are able to emotionally engage consumers are adding to the satisfaction, the loyalty because they have kind of unique stories that uh, relate them to the brand. But again, this is not sufficient (laughs) because then there is a third aspect that you need to really take care for is, okay, I have a good product, exceptional product. I am emotionally engaging with my consumers, but then you really, really need to be careful in managing every single touch point that you have with your consumers, because Again, uh, we can do the example of a, a relationship, and men and women, women and men, whatever you want. You know, you it's not because you remember the birthday or you bring the the flowers, uh, etc. You have to every time you have a, you know a touch point, every time you 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 do something, you have to be sure that you deliver the expectation, that you keep up to the expectation, and you you keep this emotional engagement going, and. And it's much, much better to, you know, do incremental things every single day. You know, one small bit, another bit, another bit, which will create at the end a big uh, wow moments. instead of having big peaks and the big downs and ups and downs because people, consumers, are kind of confused and then they start thinking, OK, OK, this is not for me. So the coherency and consistency in managing these touch points is much more important than doing something exceptional.
1: When you were talking about living the brand, I was thinking I'd read something recently about uh, Toyota developing the Lexus brand. And they said, look, our prime consumer is going to be Americans. So they sent the design team to America to live as wealthy Americans, and they got them Country Club, and they put them in houses in Beverly Hills, and they got them driving Mercedes and BMWs, and it was like, live live like your customer for three months, exactly as you said, because if you don't know how they operate, how they think, where they hang out, what, they, what their life is, you could never design a product to fit in.
0: You don't even understand that they're doing wrong things, because for you, it's normal not to do these things. So you... Or if you see these things, you say, oh, why? These are crazy, stupid, rich people, or why, why they, they have more money than sense, et etc." et cetera. But you really have to understand. First of all, apart if you're doing wrong things, if you have money, probably something good you have done in your life. I'm talking money done in a proper way. And then everybody's free once he has worked hard to use the money the way they want. But really, it's difficult to. To play a part, to pretend. You no, know? you really need to like it, love it, and and then you can really put yourself in the shoes of, of the of the potential consumers and and really try to speak really with them and 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 engage with them. And you know, and the ultimate state that you get when you do these things right. So the exceptional product, the emotional engagement strictly controlling all the brand exposures the touch point especially today i mean we are talking about omni channel that's it i mean it doesn't matter if i see your product on a website in, in a store in a, in a warehouse and, you know or with another customer i always have to be exposed to the same experience or to the same uh, you know positioning I, I really have to be careful of that if i do these things well i have the chance to become what I call a reference brand instead of a reference brand. Instead of saying, oh, I prefer these things instead of this other, this bag instead of of this other, or this coffee instead of this other coffee. No, no, this is the bag, the coffee, the watch, you know, the the phone. And all the others become like followers by definition because you are not more a preference, but a reference point for all the consumer. And this is developed within normally a community, you know, it can be the community of uh, chef, versus food, tech community, you know. Uh, and this is the ultimate status, you know. It's like uh, in the commercial fun and build at the advocacy status, you know, at the top of the pyramid.
1: So that, was that the playbook that you used to create virtue?
0: Well, this is the playbook I it's not that I use, is that I put together in, in doing all these experiences that I made with, with Verto, with Nespresso, etc. But if you think about the two companies, for example, and Illy as well, because Illy is, uh, is coffee, but is, is primarily positioned, etc. You know, if you think about what the company were doing, well, we were kind of applying this principle. So it's like more than probably while
1: doing it, I kind of formalized this kind of framework. So when you started trying to create this reference brand for a premium mobile phone, Virtu, did you know you'd be able to pull it off or were you...?
0: Well, there there was already, there was already, there, the the, the challenge, the additional challenge was understanding that the company was already existing. So I joined when it was acquired by uh, the the PE. It was, the challenge there was applying this, but also understanding the two key things in that world were changing. One was the technology side. You know, Vertu was uh, created by Nokia, and Nokia was by far the number one in the phone in the world before the iPhone. And uh, and there, back to the, <laughs> what we were discussing before, the complacency killed them. There was a technological challenge because people had a luxurious phone, but there was crap in terms of the old technology. They start seeing the new first smartphone, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the first challenge. At the same time, the luxury world was changing because we were moving from the first phase of wow, wow, bling, bling, luxury, the wannabe or the new rich, let's say the the Asian, the Russians, the Arabs of 20 years ago, now to a more, you know, from show to show that you know, a more understated look at uh, luxury. So not showy, bling, bling. There was also, you remember, the No Logo movement at that time. Et cetera. So what we need to do was not only applying this principle we were discussing before, but also working at the same time on two parallel things, which normally you don't find combined in one company, tech company and luxury company. And I was lucky... Because technology has always been my passion since I was a kid, and still today premium and luxury as well, so I could put the two words together, so I had one two jobs in one and and so we did the change, so we move uh, from that from Nokia to Android uh, with the partnership with Google, then we start always designing fantastic luxurious phone but but with a design that was more subtle, not bling bling and wow, and so trying to be appealing for another kind of audience. So people that, uh, yes, they, they, they have uh, the money and they don't want to have the same phone on everybody else. And attached to that, they want a range of services in order to feel part of that community I was mentioning before. No? So making sure that the product was delivering the expectation of the customer where they were considering the iPhones a kind of hygiene factor. So that was not more an edge being a, a good phone because you can buy a, you could buy at that time an iPhone it was already a good phone at that time. Not as good as today, but it was a good one. So that was an hygiene factor to deliver. But it was not the reason why you, you're gonna buy a, a virtual phone. It's all what you build around the, the image, the material, the craft, the services, the concierge that helped to create this community of people that were willing to pay for that, of course, because that's the that's the point. There is no need in the world for a luxury phone. There is no need for luxury at all. I mean, because luxury is not something that you need; it's something that you want. It's different,
1: you know. How successful were you there?
0: Well, we co- we completely transformed the company, and we were, you know, it was a PE environment, so we were able to do all this change, and that was paramount to create the equity story, to find a new a new owner for the company. And we sold the company back in 2015, at the end of 2015. Well, now Vertu is still existing, but th- there was a kind of uh, showing how keeping the direction is important. You know, when we were selling the company, then the one was offering and was the right amount, etc. The, the, the buyer was a Chinese company. Well, they buy a lot of luxury, but they don't necessarily at that time understand what managing luxury is. Right is. And so they probably took decisions, not the right decision. They were not uh, really probably aware of the implication of certain decisions. For example, even if I say that the phone is an aging factor, it's complicated to develop a motherboard of the phone. I mean, our motherboard were developed together with Foxconn. The same was developing the, the motherboard of iPhone. But, you know, then you have to couple this motherboard with luxurious material like titanium, sapphire, leather, So if you don't put the right components in the right place, the phone doesn't work. The Wi-Fi antennas, Bluetooth, all of these things. So try to change the design. He had in mind still the old Chinese bling bling luxury. But, you know, when you change the design of a phone, then you have to start rebuild the platform again. Building a platform is a lot of capex. And people are expecting new models to come out every time. So there was a pipeline of models already in line. It was top. It was top for a, one year and a half. And so boutiques were empty with new, no, no new product. So you start creating the problem by yourself. And then uh, the rest is history. Then, you know, I, I lost uh,
1: sight of the company and what they're doing.
0: But if you take the wrong way, then uh, don't ask why you are in the wrong place.
1: Then you got hired to help at Nespresso. No, no. Uh, Nespresso was before. No, no, no. Then I, after Verto, went to Illy. Oh, okay. Well, so tell me the Nespresso story then.
0: Well, Nespresso is where you know I develop uh, the, the that kind of framework that then I apply you know in, in developing the brand. So you know I, I joined the company at the very beginning. I was living in Italy at that time; it was not uh, known. And really, I had the, the chance to work for a, for a company and, and a team that were really at the beginning of this fantastic story that I everybody knows. I think. We, because I say we, because it's a, it was really a teamwork, it's not only me, of course. We, we were in a moment where we were really excited. Really, We knew that something was coming, and at the point that we were working hard to make it happen everywhere, there were already some markets that were up and running, like France, Benelux, Germany, etc. But we really wanted to make it global. And at that time, the two key shifts that I made was really one on the, the management of the brand and the second on the retail network. At the beginning, you know, being Nespresso are part of Nestlé. It was a little bit built the Nestlé way, where Nestlé, you have the local Nestlé that are like, you know, they have the power to decide on the product, the consumer, etc. Although Nestlé is a big multinational company, they think food is local, so you have to act locally, blah, blah, blah. So there were some, the subsidiaries that were built at that time, they were doing a little bit their own things. Yes, there was a net quarter developing the product, the system on everything, managing some of the things, but there were a lot of things, especially those two related to brand building, consumer communication promotion, which are were locally based. With the attitude, okay, we are French, so the French are different. We are... and yeah. so. But again, back to the point I made, if you want to create a global brand, you have to have a global positioning and, and the touch point should be the same. So what we start doing... Uh, We start concentrating at the center all the activities and really shifting from a product which aimed to be global but it was locally managed to a really globally managed brand, centrally managed uh, in in Switzerland where the headquarters uh, are still today. So start moving all the the, the things we were building around, the the, the trade, uh, trade marketing, uh, uh, customer care, so CRM, etc., all these activities. And then countries have still an important role of translating, applying this in their countries, but there was not the possibility to communicate in one way, in one country, in another way in the other countries. But it was a process, you know, because at the beginning, now everybody remembers, you know, still there, George Clooney and the ad, etc. But it came a little bit later because we had to gradually bring all the countries the same level of understanding of the brand so at the beginning there were still some TV campaigns that were different uh, in France uh, versus other countries etc cetera, etc cetera. and then gradually we moved to this uh, and uh, and George was really the the very first one to be a global campaign and and then he became also a global a global ambassador how did you pick George well George was picked in a very Thorough traditional <laughs> Nestlé way with market research uh, surveys. Uh, so w- when uh, we decided we wanted a brand ambassador, etc., so we start scouting, and there was uh, hundreds of person analyze and check and etc. And then we narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down to to two three person, and at the end, George came out as the one who, of course, is loved by women, fantastic, but he's also loved by men. So you know, because if you see George, he's a handsome guy, a, but you don't feel him as a, an enemy or someone. You feel as a friend. You can go out. Of course, if you go out with George, he's going to pick all the girls and you're going to be alone because you're not George. But you think, oh, he's a nice guy, he's a friend, which doesn't happen if you think about other potential good-looking men like Brad Pitt or Johnny Depp at that time. So they were all loved by women, but men, they say, oh, no, I don't like this guy, because they felt like on competition. Well, George was a kind of already across, uh, you know, gender and generation at that time already. It was loved by everybody, and it was a good choice, I think.
1: And then you also, you you were saying before we were recording, that sort of retail experience was one of the things that, that you brought into the brand, which they didn't have before.
0: Exactly. Since, you know, at that time, there was something that were already started. But, you know, when I joined, they say, oh, you know, Max, we are the... They show me a, a kind of chart with a square. There were all the luxury brands inside: Chanel, Vuitton, Hermès, or Rolex. And in the middle, there was the end of the square. So we are a luxury brand. I said, "Okay, fantastic. So let's do like a luxury brand. So let's we have to really start managing and taking care of all the touch points, and let's start selling the product really like a, a luxurious brand. Because it would have been impossible to create such a global brand." and brand experience only by selling espresso through uh, normal stores or through uh, uh, e-commerce etc you have to have a place where you f- have the full uh, espresso experience and there the idea was let's not since we have these beautiful capsules with all these uh, beautiful colors etc we say well instead of going where, where everybody's going every coffee roaster show you the beans the, and the coffee house Let's do a boutique. So let's uh, bring the people in a boutique, luxurious environment where they have uh, still all the explanation of the coffee uh, or why we do this. They can try the machine, beautifully designed, completely different from the traditional other machines. So the creation of the Nespresso club. And so you are part of the club, you are a member of this club. And uh, so creating this community of people was was key to develop the brand because you have the system so the capsule very easy you put remember today capsules are mostly used because they're very convenient but at that time there was nothing like that push a button put a capsule perfect coffee every time but then you have a you know the, the customer care of an espresso taking care of you if you have a problem etc and 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 then you have all the communication uh, around an espresso club so you really create this community of people that were really becoming more and more ambassador of the brand on top of George himself because I remember at that time almost one out of 50 percent of our new customer, were brought by an existing customer, so it, which is very, very powerful. So people were already at an espresso machine at home. They com- were convinced that their guess, oh, this is fantastic. You have, to buy you have to buy it. So 50% of the customer acquisition was done through another customer.
1: I was about to ask this question anyway, but it's even more pertinent now. So when somebody bought an espresso, what were you trying to make them feel? Does it make me feel smart? Does it make me feel sophisticated? Did you have an aim?
0: make you feel that you can get to the ultimate coffee experience. That's that's,
1: that's what we were trying to feel. So you've, you've discovered a truth that other people don't know, which then helps you become an ambassador.
0: I'm not saying coffee only, meaning, you know, remember what I said at the beginning, just a good coffee, because of course an espresso was a good coffee, but the overall experience had to be good. So the way you interact with the brand, the way you talk with the customer care, the way you are you are contacted with the mailings, with the phone calls, the way you you enter in a in, in a store and you you speak with this coffee specialist, you know, really feeling part of this community of people in the know that have discovered this fantastic product and fantastic brand, and they are happy and satisfied but they are also emotionally attached to this brand because they leave every time an experience.
1: Fab. So then you went to Illy, or you were there, the last executive job you've had is at Illy, which is premium coffee. But that was the slightly different because now it's a family business. Yeah. So that can be challenging being the first person in charge in a family business who's not a member of the family. What was your experience like at Illy and what did you do there? What were the challenges and how did you overcome them?
0: Well, you know, Illy was already a company with... a uh, a long heritage when I joined. It was already the third generation managing the company. So there was a strong uh, company culture, and it was uh, 100% family-owned and 100% family-managed because the CEO was part of them, Mr. ili himself. So coming at the place of Mr. ili it's, it's a challenge because uh, you need to really move from a family-managed and led company to a professionally-managed company And then the biggest challenge I faced was to really change the company culture. But changing the company culture per se doesn't mean anything because... It's impossible to change a
1: company culture if you don't embrace and know this company culture. Which is a bit like the thing you said earlier about living a luxury brand. You have to embrace it before you can change it. Exactly.
0: Because, I mean, you can't come in a company with 80 more plus years of history, with family, blah, 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 and say, okay, I'm here now, I'm going to change everything because uh, we want to become uh, whatever. So you really need to be there, listen, and try to understand the way they do things, which is the definition of culture, the way we do things here. So the way they do things there. And then when you are accepted by the company culture and the community, then start to seed and start steering some directional changes. And here there is no better way to do these things than doing by example. So leading by example. So being with the people, walk the talk. This has always been for me an essential point, which is becoming even more important today. And that gradually the people start following you because they feel part of this new growing community and not because you are the boss and the CEO and and you think uh, new things and they have to do a. So if they don't feel part of their community, they're gonna act like you are a virus, so they come and they try to kill you. If they feel you are there and you are like them, nobody wants to to kill themselves, so they want really to help you, and they start, you know, moving. But it's a lot of work with people. Then, of course, it's not easy because normally, if you want to have a simple view of these kind of things, you normally find three kind of. Let's say three kinds of people when you have the promoters, you have the neutrals, and you have the detractors. So the first thing you need to do when you're trying to do these kind of changes is quickly identify the promoters, which are those who are rapidly and positively aligned with your vision and the way you do things. But the, the thing here is not doing the usual thing. Okay, I look at the management team, the executive team, who's with me, who's against me, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. Promoters can be anywhere in the company can be the people at the reception can be in the factory so if you quickly identify these people then this become your amplifier your voice is spread across the company like if you are everywhere every time yeah so use them to be your amplifier how do you find them well you can't find them in a video chat at that time they were not you have to go around look at the people talk with them not necessarily about job you know grabbing a coffee, that's why I think this, this, and if you want to open a parenthesis of how I I see smart working, or etc., we can talk about it, but you know, these informal touches and communication that you have with people, you start to really understand because they give you weak signals that are not uh, necessarily linked to the job, but they are linked to the way they are and the way they think and the way they want to interact. And then you understand, okay, this person we are on the same wavelength uh, exactly exactly so and then y- y- you understand this uh, and you do with all the people you meet showing that you are really part of the team and you do it because you really like to do this not because you have to do this i really like to go around in the factory you know meeting the worker seeing the problems that they have asking questions and coming back uh, to say, oh, we we saw that problem. Did they solve it? So showing that you really care and not, you know, having your secretaries telling, oh, remember that today is the birthday of this guy. And even those kind of things. You know, I had 1,400 people to manage, and and I always try to have a phone call, or if I really was impossible, a text message for the birthday or for important events of their lives, marriage, or even tragic events, dads or things like that, or new babies, really showing that you really care because I'm like that. I think I need this, this. I'm a social animal, so I need this social contact in order to perform because you can't perform alone. Everything I have done in my life is through also other people in the team. So if you are not part of this community and family... So I let's say I create this sense of family not being part of the family. You know what I mean? In a family, I recreated another family, but which was not linked to the fact that my name was Illy, but I was not part of... I was like adopted (laughs) and being
1: part of this bigger family. And so how long did that culture change process take? How long is it? And how many people did you say there were? Did you... 1,400. Okay. So how long does it take to turn an oil tanker like that?
0: Again, I would say it took uh, probably the first term, you know, so the first three years to do this, uh, this different, because we were mentioning, we have not mentioned the other two categories. So the the neutrals and the detractors. You ask me, uh, how do you find them, the promoters? It's very easy. If you go around and you have a human contact with good people, with humanity, you immediately spot. The detractors are very, very dangerous and very, very difficult to, to spot because they are not detractors in front of you. They are always talking on your back. So in front of you they act like enthusiastic promoters blah 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 but then they're digging holes everywhere you go etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there you really have to have your radar screens everywhere and try to quickly identify them because it's like a you know a rotten fruit in a fruit basket then everybody's going
1: you know rotten and and that's not good. Can you turn them around or or do you have to get rid of them?
0: You have to rapidly understand that in in my experience uh, probably Having the human side very developed, one of the key learnings is that I have to be probably more tough in certain situations. And this is the learning uh, is a learning that I made because I have the tendency to think well of the people. I have the tendency to give, you know, to to trust. Because I never imagine that someone is telling me something that is not thinking, because I'm saying what I think. If I like you, I say I like you. I don't say I like you, I don't like you. So I'm very straightforward, human, emotionally engaged with people. So I think that, but this is a mistake because there are people who are able to manipulate you. And so I did it, but sometimes, you know, I had to learn how to do it in a more tougher way and a quicker way. So my suggestion is if your gut feeling saying is no, then you're most probably right. And don't put at stake all the other good you know, fruits you have in the basket for one, for trying to protect. But you have to try because this is, I mean, I, I joined where already there was a list of the good and the bad, you know, is this. I say, I don't want to see this list, okay? I want to really see and meet the people have my own opinion. So you have to try, even with this, if you can try to convince me, but the message is don't try too long, because your time is uh, is precious, and when uh, resources are scarce, uh, allocation is <laughs> is key. And so, the certain point you have to say okay, and then you know acting on do this on these two categories, you then move the category in the beginning of the you know. The people was or waving left and right and 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 using this uh, trying to attract them all on the positive side.
1: What was the impact, Ili? What problem did they hire you to solve?
0: Well, the, the problem was really that uh, the more the company was go- was growing, the, the more there was a complexity to face, uh, the more there was a, the need to uh, steer the brand in a direction where Illy makes sense in the today's world, where you have big giants in the coffee world. You have, you know, Nestle and JDE that owns almost fifty percent of the market. So, how to survive in this is really focusing on uh, bigger, bolder, and better things. So. Project does have an impact because you are small, you can't compete everywhere with all these giants. You have to select what you do and really focus on on, uh, on the right people and trying to keep, although we were growing, the spirit of a startup. So, you know, not being uh, binded to the procedure and processes or organizational chart, but trying really to have this spirit that you normally have when you are a startup, but you start losing. So, I was saying. In Italy, I want to be a startup who is 90 years old. <laughs> so, yeah. That was what, what I wanted to. Because I think this spirit is the one who helps to bring the, the people forward, who helps to have uh, people that, as uh, we were mentioning before recording, they have the, this magic four H's. <laughs> so we yeah. had heart and hands and humanity. That for me is what I try to give and what I look for the people that, that, that work uh, together with me. And Every age plays an important role, especially the last one in, in post-COVID, etc. But of course, the head is obvious. You need to know your stuff. You need to be a professional. You can learn. You can grow. But you know, according to the position you cover, you need to 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 know how to do things. Uh, and being a professional is a is also a form of a respect co- uh, versus all your colleagues. Then you have the you have the hands. Meaning that you really need to like to be involved in things in doing things together with the people, because you can 't just be you know the commander and saying to others what you do and you never do any things and you are not able to engage to have this uh, possibility to uh, have these uh, up and down helicopter things that you go down you go up and really. Feeling that we are all part of the same thing, although we can do, we are, we can be at different level with different experiences. But then the most important thing is the hard part. There is the most difficult part to find because you can find people with good hand, with good head. But the heart is what has always for me made the difference because it gives you this uh, extra bit of passion that allow you to go the extra mile to do the things that seems impossible. The, not feeling the, the 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 fatigue, the fear, you, you and and really brings you together in, in achieving something which is exceptional, is driving you forward in difficulties, uh, is keeping you together, etc. Uh, etc. Et because this is a, is key. So it's, it's the extra part that you put in what you do that not everybody does. So we can be all exceptional people. The the small part that makes the difference is really the part of the art. If you put exceptional capacity, you know, background, academic background, etc., but you don't have heart and passion, you're never going to make a difference. Then I added a dimension that more and more was evident post-COVID, which is this age of the humanity. So meaning that more and more people now they want to feel, uh, I'm talking about at work, uh, of course, where we spend uh, most of our lives uh, at the beginning you know they really be part of something bigger than just doing a job even if they like the job or even if they like the company they really need to feel why i'm doing the, all this what are my what is my relationship uh, uh, with the company and what the company is doing what is the, the sense of purpose that i have and the purpose of the company so asking this question and considering people not as employees but as human beings that come to work but they have personal stories personal life so the way you interact with them and the people interact with them so kindness and and these things are for me will be more and more important in the future and lots lot of and a big part of uh, attracting and retaining uh, talents so Showing that you really care for the human side of human being and not just for they are able to do as a professional managers, leaders, etc., etc. So these are the four things that I normally try to give and uh, and get back from people when I work.
1: Fab. And um, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier?
0: Well, I said something before, to learn to sometimes to, to take tough decision much earlier and not to take the burden on me every time. But I think that I know that there will always be something that I don't know. So this is uh, facing the fact that you will never be there, and there is not such a thing of getting to uh, an objective. But because if you just focus on that, you lose the journey, and the journey is the most important part. Because when you get to the very end, where well, we all we all get, there is nothing; it's finished. So I learned that there is always something that I don't know, and this is something which is driving me forward. And uh, is pushing me to exit from my comfort zone, to change my beliefs, which are those who are most difficult to change, and also to be open and to interact with a community that is supporting you in this journey. Because again, when you develop your own beliefs, especially if you have you are a successful, you have an happy life, etc., you have strong beliefs and you you tend to then start overestimating yourself and, uh, and, uh, and your capacity and your thinking. So, But we all need to grow. So you, you have to make learning a habit. That's what I discovered. And you're never there. Uh, so it, it's continuous progression.
1: And do you have any book recommendations? Well, uh, I have a recommendation. Uh,
0: I read an old book that now is back in the 90s, and it was out in 1998, which was called Who Move My Cheese? by Spencer Johnson, which was like, it was not a strategic book, it was not always like a novel about, you know, the two little people and the mice, etc. But if you think about the learning that I get from there, was like kind of applied throughout my career. And so I suggest to reread the book, and like I did recently, because I discovered there was a sequel, which is called Out of the Maze, which came out in 2018, which there is this kind of sequel of this. And it's also interesting because it's like opening and closing, you know, the thing because it was at the beginning and now at this part of my life and my career. So it's like a rouge throughout my career. And, you know, out of the first book, I really learned that, yes, it's important to have a big vision, a strategy, a plan, etc. But for me, you have to get moving. So execution is strategy. Strategy with no execution is just a PowerPoint chart with no power and no point. So that's what I always say. So execution is strategy, and it's only by executing your strategy that you understand if your strategy is right. If you you understand that you know you have to adjust it, you know this is a continuous interaction. But start doing things and not being too much in the strategizing thinking moment. That was the first learning out of of that book. Then, you know, really what I mentioned at the beginning was what I discovered that it was true, is really that continuous learning must be, become a habit. You know, don't go, well, the cheese is no more. Who oh, move my cheese. No, you have to, you know, move out of that and and continuous. And then... Not be paralyzed and say, okay, there is not more what I, wa- I wanted there and move. So don't try to, you know, progression, not perfection. Because then when you progress, you discover that instead of trying to face, you know, hit the wall continuously, you just move a little bit to the left and then you see a motorway and then you go and you go somewhere else and you and you are happier. So this, I suggest to reread this, but also read the, the, the other one, which is telling you that, Okay, you did it. you, you get what you wanted, etc, but never take success, happiness for granted. Never being in your comfort zone because at the moment in time you have to be ready to change. and change is difficult to make because it's based on what you what you have done so far. you develop these beliefs that you think that you are you are perfect, you can do everything you want. And to change the beliefs, you really to, need to start to work on yourself change yourself, which is really, really difficult. That's why being open to others, uh, to feedbacks and creating this community of friends that can really help you to give
1: you another perspective is also very helpful. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for coming on today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.